Welcome to the Montgomery Community Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to grow deeper in your faith. If you'd like to learn more about MCC, you can visit our website at mcc.church. Well, it's awesome to be back uh, here in person and online. Welcome and thanks for joining us. Uh, As you just heard, I've been gone for a month and it's been a time of resting, relaxation, recuperation, you know, time alone with God, time with Carol. Uh, It's been amazing and I want to thank you for the time away and it's been a gift. I have to tell you that even though the focus of, you know, my time away was to be rest, Uh, The beginning of our time away necessarily wasn't all that restful. Uh, It was more adventuresome. We went to a place called Glacier National Park. Anyone been there? Yeah, we got a couple. That place rocks. It's absolutely amazing. And if you were to go, uh, you would go into the park and you'd, you'd stumble across this road that goes through the entire park called Going to the Sun Road. And I think the reason why it's called going to the Sun Road is because the more you drive it, the higher you go, and eventually you're almost there where the sun is. I mean, you are up so incredibly high, and, and, the, and your lane is incredibly narrow, and the way down is really far. And so when I was driving, I couldn't look down because it was just a severe drop as you're just trying to stay on this road. A little bit terrifying, actually. Well, we got up to this place called Logan Pass. And it's there, there's a couple different trails that we took. The first uh, was this amazing trail called Highline Trail. Uh, Many people rated it as the number one trail there in Glacier. And let me explain just a bit of this trail to you. You start this trail, and you've got an ample like three feet wide in front of you. You know, who needs more space than that? And then on your right-hand side is the mountain. It's like a rock wall. And there are ropes that have been mounted into the side there so you can hold on to, so you have something to grab onto as you try to walk this trail. Because in front of you, there was like five miles of trail in front of us, Uh, this little narrow trail. To the right of you is this rock wall, and to the left of you is the end of you, should you stumble or fall. Well, we hiked this for like five miles. We came around this corner, and we had enough room there to just kind of sit down and eat. We had a little lunch. And it's there, I just shot this short little video to kind of bring you in to where I was right here at the Highline Trail. Take a look. It should be there. It's coming. There it is. Highline Trail. We haven't. That's something? There it is. It was beautiful. Well, we got back the next day. We went to another trail there at the top of Logan Pass. It's called Hidden Lake. And as you begin to scale that trail, you realize how high you are because it's hard to breathe. But secondly, of all the snow, a lot of snow. In fact, as we were hiking up, we came across a couple snowboarders who actually snowboarded down the trail. Because in certain parts, there's just snow everywhere. And in other parts of the same trail, no snow at all. It's kind of interesting. And as we got up higher and higher, I looked up and I saw something that I thought was kind of interesting. I found these bighorn sheep. There was a group of them. Take a look here at the video. And we kind of go in here closer. See how they're up there at the rocky part. And there's a group of them there. Here's an image. Maybe that'll help you to kind of see the perspective on things. But they're way up high, way up there. And I found that really peculiar. 
Because in their state of hunger, the best place they thought to go was high on the mountain where there was little to no grass at all. And yet, a few hundred feet below them was all the grass they ever needed. And I find that interesting. In fact, there was some sheep that found that grass. They seemed to be doing pretty well. And it holds some spiritual significance for us. See, the very God who loves you, the very God who, who, who has reached out to save you, longs for you to feast upon that green grass he's provided for you. All you have to do is repent, follow, believe, and keep trusting, and he's gonna give you all the green grass that you ever need. And yet there are those who choose to do otherwise. They feel that there's another way, another path, another feeding ground. And so they venture high above where others have gone in order to eat whatever grass they can find in that rocky soil. And while it's certainly not a fruitful journey, it is their journey. And so they try to convince themselves that the grass that they really can't feed upon is better than the grass that other people are actually enjoying. As I say that, anyone come to your mind in your life who's ventured off the path of the green grass God has given them and they're trying to live in that rocky soil land? Maybe you. Maybe at a period in your own life where you just kind of stepped away, thought that sounds pretty attractive, and then you realized it really isn't all that good. Well, that brings us to this series today, and I want to begin this series with this question. Did you know that there is a movement spreading across America, it's spreading like wildfire, aimed at getting Christians to leave the green grass that God has given them and to live somehow in that rocky ground? Did you know that? In fact, the Gospel Coalition has said that up to 60%, parents hear me now, up to 60% of Christians who graduate from high school will not only engage in this movement, many will fall away from the faith. It's a movement that's been formed against the kind of Christianity that people say they grew up with. Hyper-legalism, hyper-conservatism, and Christian nationalism within the church. Bottom line, this movement questions the goodness of God, and it questions the goodness of Christianity. I stumbled into this a couple years ago. I went to this Bible conference, maybe you know, five months or so before COVID hit. I, I traveled by car six hours to this Bible conference. People had traveled from all over the country. There's like 1,500 people there to study the Hebrew and the Greek and the context and all of that. I love it. But there were six different speakers that were speaking at that conference. And one of them I'd never heard of before. And so when they got up, I was intrigued. And I'll tell you what, right away you realize they are a really good speaker. I mean, they would begin and they would lure you in and into a story and eventually they would show you something you'd never seen before. Incredibly creative. Well, at the last day of the conference, in fact, the last speech basically was this speaker. And so I was leaning forward with anticipation to hear them one last time. And halfway through what they were saying, they delivered a particular phrase that I had heard before, and the audience applauded them. And then they followed up with another phrase that I had heard before, and the audience applauded even louder. And I sat there in silence, because I had heard those phrases before. I knew where they came from. You see, I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And in Grand Rapids, Michigan, there was a church that sprung up almost out of nowhere, and the thing grew like wildfire. Thousands and thousands of people went to that church. In fact, my parents went to that church for a good season of time. And people went, and they traveled for hours, literally, to go to church on a Sunday there because of the good biblical teaching. 
But over time, what happened was that teacher, that pastor began not so much to teach, but to ask questions. One question after another, and at first people thought that was inventive, but eventually they realized he's not really answering anything. So what does he actually believe? And the pressure kind of mounted and he resigned and then he, he announced that he's moving out to Hollywood to make movies. And the next thing you know, I mean, he was on national syndicated TV on the Oprah Winfrey Network and it was a show on spirituality. He became a pastor to the stars, to the popular people. In fact, I'm a, I'm a football fan and one of my favorite teams is the Green Bay Packers. And I have really admired Aaron Rodgers for years. Well, Aaron Rodgers... After one big game, when he you know, won the Super Bowl, he grew up as a Christian and he started to have questions about his faith. Well, he, he talks about the fact that he was lucky enough to meet this pastor, this former pastor from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where my parents used to go to his church. And he credits this very pastor with helping him to walk away from the Christian faith. Aaron Rodgers now says he has absolutely no faith in anything at all. It was this pastor that this speaker was quoting. And so I went up afterwards, because I was like in the second row, and I went up right to this speaker and I said, you know what, thanks for what you've done throughout this conference. You're an amazing speaker. And I want you to know I've learned a lot from you. But I also want you to know that those phrases that everybody applauded, I know they weren't yours. They, they actually came from somewhere else. And I know the intention of those phrases is to lead people away from the faith. Not to draw them closer to Jesus. So what's going on? And they looked at me and said, you know what? I minister out in California. And out in California where I live, nobody's going to buy Christianity anymore. Not the way we've been talking about it for 2,000 years. And so I go about it differently. And Jesus is still there. You know, kind of in the center. It's different. But Jesus is still part of the equation. But it is a different thing that I do. And it really speaks to that audience that's out there. And then they stopped. And they said, I, you know what? You kind of caught me off guard. I think I might have actually said some things that would be damaging. So please don't tell the, the leaders of this conference what I just said because they'll never invite me back here again. Well, I got into the car. And once I got to the highway where I knew I was going, I called up the leader of that conference because I had met him a couple years before. His number was in my phone. And I said, are you aware that there is a movement a movement all across this country, many times led by pastors or former people who were in the religious movement, aimed at getting people to leave the faith, and that person is part of that movement. They said, I had no idea. And many Christians, as they sit in their churches across the country here today, have no idea. This movement has been very successful. Hundreds of thousands of people have walked away from the faith as a result of it. And they've walked away from that green grass that God has given them. And what does that green grass represent? Well, it represents the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us what the gospel is in a few short verses. He says here, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So in a nutshell, the, the gospel declares that we have a sin problem that only Jesus can eradicate. See, our culture today doesn't want to talk about sin. In fact, they'll just talk about our humanity. That's just our humanity. 
And that way, nobody's really accountable for anything because we all just do that kind of stuff. No, the Bible says it's wrong, and the Bible calls it sin. And only Jesus can eradicate that sin, which is why Paul says Jesus paid for our sins through his death and through his burial. And ultimately, Jesus conquered our sins through his resurrection on the third day so that not only he would live again, but all those who placed their hope and faith in him could live as well. Friends, this is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In our last series, Dear Church, we examined what was transpiring in the first century churches to see what was happening back then in order to learn from them and how we can apply those lessons today. And I just want to thank Beth Guckenberger for her leadership. Did she not do an incredible job over the past month, huh? Absolutely. Today, we're not talking so much about what happened way back then. We're talking about what's happening right now. In the American church today, what's happening across this country right now. Because rather than embrace the green, green grass of the gospel, this movement has sought to undo the gospel by creating another more to its liking. And Paul warned us about this. He writes in 2 Corinthians 11, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone preaches to you a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. He's saying there are others who are falling away right now. Are you noticing? Are you doing some things about this? As it relates to our church across the country, the American Christian church today, are you aware of this different gospel that's being promoted? Are you? I mean, have you somehow unknowingly engaged with it? Are your kids already investigating it without you knowing it if you're a parent? Friends, the internet has largely replaced parents as a place that spiritually transforms junior high, high school, and college students, and even those who are single and older. In fact, there was a book in 1985, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And the author, Neil Postman, predicted back in 1985 that in the future, people would come to adore the technologies that would undo their capacities to think. He predicted that people wouldn't be deprived of information, but rather they'd be given so much information, they would become passive and egocentric. And he predicted that in the future, truth would be lost in a sea of irrelevance. 35 years later, we have a movement that has brought these predictions to light. They're living here today. And this movement, it's called Progressive Christianity. Have you heard of it? Just like the last service, like five people. That's why I'm doing this series. Because it's going on, it's been going on, and it's been very effective. And we need to respond in a better way as the church and as Christians to help people follow Jesus in their life. It's the call he's placed on us. Now, as I talk about progressive Christianity, please hear me on this. When this movement kind of began, there were some really great questions that it caused us to contemplate. For example, are we as Christians really serving others like Jesus, or are we more concerned with ourselves? It's a really great question. Another question they raised, does the Bible really limit the role of women serving in the church the way that some people say? Or can women actually use the gifts that God has given them? It's a really great question we should contemplate. Another was this, are we truly loving those from the LGBTQ community? Are we so busy judging them that we ourselves have forgotten what love looks like? It's a really great question. 
And yet the movement has progressed from just asking these questions. And how is this movement defined? Well, it's hard to define this movement because it's constantly morphing and changing. But the key word here is progressive. And the idea that they have is that everything is progressing. So what was right or wrong back 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, may not be right or wrong now. The values that you know, God would talk about in the Bible back then, they maybe don't even apply today. And, and the words that God had for the people back then might have been helpful for them, but maybe not so much helpful for us now because we are smarter, we are wiser, and it's up for us now to decide what that's all about. And there are many people who've engaged in this process. There's a, a songwriter out there, you may not know his name, but you've undoubtedly heard his songs. You probably sang some of his songs. He's one of the leaders now of this movement. His name is Michael Gunger. And after embracing progressive Christianity, he found himself, he says, in a state of spiritual homelessness. But he, you know, he, was, he was really depressed in that state, but he says he, he didn't stay there. And so now he's moved on, he says, and he now defines himself, these are his words, as an apophatic, mystic, Hindu, pantheist, Christian, Buddhist, skeptic, with a penchant for nihilistic, progressive existentialism. He's not lost. He's a leader of this movement, and hundreds of thousands of people are walking away from the faith because of him. Parents, are you aware of this? Are you helping to lead your children through this? Others of you here, you've undoubtedly heard the name of Tony Campolo, and if you haven't, don't feel bad, but Tony Campolo has been an author, probably 20 books out there. I mean, he spoke at all the national conferences. He was a, just one of the key leaders in the Christian movement for probably 20 years. His son, Bart, joined him in many of these events, and Bart's theology progressed from biblical Christianity to liberal Christianity to secular humanism. People say, what's humanism? It's just a nicer version of atheism. It's kind of like atheism with a little bit of purpose. Now, he has predicted that in 10 years, 30 to 40% of so-called progressive Christians will also become atheists just like him. And Bart has actually committed his life to helping people in this endeavor, which is why over the past several years now, he has served as a chaplain right here at the University of Cincinnati. St. Augustine of Hippo says, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe, but yourself. You see, believing in yourself is at the core of humanism. It's at the core of atheism. And so now that I've defined what the progressive Christianity kind of movement is a little bit, let's talk about what it does as a movement. That's the key, as a movement. Here's what it's committed to. It's called the pathway of deconstruction. How many people have heard the word deconstruction? Yes, yeah, slightly more, maybe 20 here in this room. Friends, this word is like wildfire on the internet. People are using this word all over the place. We need to be aware of it. And what is deconstruction? It is the identification of the constructed elements of one's faith, followed by the dismantling of each core belief in order to discern what might be useful, abandoned, or redefined. And because they would say, because we're smarter and wiser and so progressed now, we can look at the Bible and we say, well, that might be useful for me, so I'll keep that. I get to abandon that because I really don't like that part, and I'm going to redefine this in a way that actually works for me now. This is what this movement is all about. 
Now, before I dive more into this, let me talk here about a clear distinction, and it's really important to understand this, a distinction between the deconstruction process and the deconstruction movement. See, the deconstruction process is identifying wrong beliefs about God in order to more fully know God. I'm gonna give you some examples from my own life. I grew up for many years in the charismatic church. And in the particular church I grew up in, it's not true of all charismatics, but in the church I grew up in, they told me, some people did anyway, that if you don't speak with the spiritual gift of tongues, well, then you're not a Christian. And I began to doubt if that was true. So I opened up the pages of scripture as a teenager and realized that the Bible says that you know, God gives us all kinds of spiritual gifts. Each person receives different spiritual gifts. But there's not one gift or spiritual gift that everybody receives. And so I had to kind of you know, disassemble that, right? Deconstruct that and rebuild that again based on what the Bible says in order to know God better. Or for example, I was taught that if you didn't live in perfect health, it's because you had a sin in your life that you needed to confess. And as soon as you confessed that sin, you would be instantly healed. Well, I doubted that as well. I wasn't sure that was the truth. So I opened up the pages of scripture and I looked at the apostle Paul, who struggled with a physical ailment for years. And he talks about it. And he's one of the greatest men of faith, right, that have ever lived. And so I had to deconstruct that and rebuild that again based on what the Bible said in order to know God better. A third thing I had to deconstruct was this idea that people told me and taught me that as a Christian, you had to prosper. And what that meant to them and what they wanted me to buy was that meant you had to prosper financially. And so a good Christian in this mindset would be somebody who has a big home, a new car, and a lot of money in the bank. But if you don't have that, you're not a good Christian. So somebody who's a middle class person or a lower class in their system in terms of finances, not very good Christians at all. Because we are called to financially prosper. No. The Bible says Jesus had no place to lay his head. He didn't have a home. He didn't have cattle. He's the one that we follow. And so I doubted that I deconstructed that and rebuilt my faith again based on what the Bible says in order to know God better. And so sometimes there are things that we need to deconstruct in order to know God better. And so while the process is identifying wrong beliefs about God in order to more fully know God, the deconstruction movement is about questioning true beliefs about God in order to minimize or cancel God. If you're a note taker, you might want to add a word in order to minimize or cancel or redefine God would be another word possibly to add. And while various leaders of this movement have certainly made some names for themselves, I mean, they have millions of followers on Instagram and their podcasts and all over. They have set aside something that Jesus said, I think directly to them. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Those are serious words coming straight from Jesus Christ himself. And shortly before saying these words in Luke 17, Jesus warned the Pharisees about the sin of loving money and then turned to his disciples and warned them about the possible sins in their own lives. And by referring to these little ones, Jesus was talking about little children, but he was also talking about those who were new or infant in the faith. You see, you could say that the Pharisees were early deconstructionists who through their criticisms and false judgments tried to diminish Jesus or cancel Jesus 
while promoting themselves and making themselves look wise. And Jesus says, there will be a cost for doing so. You see, friends, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Think about that. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And our culture knows this, which is why it is so intent on helping you to redefine or outright confuse or cancel your beliefs about God. And social media has been an ally in this endeavor. In fact, various podcasts along with Instagram and other avenues will help you answer such questions as, what am I allowed to believe today? Because you know it's true, it keeps changing, they would say. What am I allowed to say today? What am I not allowed to say today that was more than acceptable to say yesterday? What makes me a moral person today? Because morals, they would say, keep changing. And what aligns me with social justice today? Not God's justice, mind you, but social justice. And who are the central targets for this deconstruction movement? Friends, anyone who would rather find an alternate route to God rather than embrace the green, green grass he has provided for them. And sadly, here's what the stats show. Once people embark upon this deconstruction journey, many will never come back. See, we're sometimes confused. People say, well, in college, you know, everyone just kind of maybe steps away from the faith for a while and they come back when they have kids. That's not what we're seeing with this. It's kind of like my drive by my previous church. I, I was meeting a friend I hadn't seen in a while. I asked him to pick the restaurant. He picked the restaurant, so I drove maybe an hour or so, and I didn't realize it brought me right by the church where I grew up in. And I thought, you know what? After lunch, I'm gonna stop in, open the doors, walk in, and just kind of relive some memories because I had some really great memories from being there. And so I had lunch with him, and after about two hours, I got in my car. I drove five minutes to where the church was, and when I got there, you know what I discovered? Nothing. In the two hours I'd been eating lunch, that church had been leveled to the ground. It was stunning. Apparently they had sold off the property and they moved elsewhere, but I've never forgotten that because it relates to what we're talking about now. You can have somebody who's very impassioned about the Christian faith, serving and loving others and on the mission field, and they start to engage in what I'm talking about, and suddenly that faith comes crashing overnight. It's very deceptive and very effective. It's happened for people just like Josh Harris. He's a well-known Christian author who wrote the very popular book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. He now says, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. You see, the Christian tradition that many children grew up in was, was awesome. And they'll talk about that. They'll have memories of their youth group and their trips and their missions and their youth group gatherings. And they'll talk about how they felt really, really super connected to God. But then they started to connect with something else, the internet. And while their parents weren't looking or didn't know it, their children were connected with the ingenuity of a podcast, the allure of social media, the inventiveness of certain kinds of questions. Questions not aimed to give you answers, but questions aimed to produce more and more and more doubt. Friends, doubt has taken on a new level of importance in our society today. Paula Reinhardt says, doubt and disillusionment have become the new form of enlightenment. 
it somehow sounds more authentic to share our doubt than it is to share our faith with confidence. This is our culture today. Now when it comes to doubt, and many people have times of doubt, the Bible says we're to have mercy on those who doubt. That means we're supposed to help them. We're supposed to work with them through their doubting period. That's what we're to be about. In fact, scripture tells us that we are to scrutinize our faith. We're to be about fact-checking, for example, in Acts 17. We're to be about thoughtful preparation, 1 Peter 3. We're to embrace a reasonable skepticism, 1 John chapter 4. We are to cooperate with others, Proverbs 27. Sometimes people don't think like us. We're to embrace multiple perspectives, the Bible says, before we make an important decision, like our faith, for example. And we're to have an appreciation for all God has shown us in his creation. On top of that, you can look in the Bible, you're gonna find over and over again people crying out with doubtful complaints and concerns and frustrations to God. That's not a new thing. Psalm 23, Habakkuk 1 would be examples we find examples of people who examined what they believed and why they believed it so they were sure and steady in their faith. And yet this is not what the modern deconstruction movement does. It asks questions, many questions aimed at providing you one thing only, doubt. The Apostle Paul again warned us about this. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone preaches to you a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. See, there were people for which they were in the church, and their faith was great, and they were doing just fine, and Paul's saying, but you're not concerned about others. There are people who used to worship right alongside of you. They're not there anymore because they have exposed themselves to false theologies and now they're on that rocky soil thinking that somehow it's feeding them. And the same holds true for us today. There are many popular pastors who have preached against easy believism, you know, and I think we should, or against the falsehood found within prosperity gospel, and I mentioned some of that just earlier. But progressive Christianity has largely gotten a pass. And it's because I think it contains the word Christian in it. And so we kind of step back and we don't really respond. But friends, we gotta understand something. Often the results of the deconstruction movement have left people without the tools needed to reconstruct much of anything in their lives. One man wrote this, and the young man, he, he went through the deconstruction process, then afterwards he looked at the rubble of his life. And he said, I realized that I didn't have the tools to rebuild. And I wasn't receiving any from these voices. Every belief I held had been neatly disassembled and laid bare on the floor for examination, but there was no guidance for putting something back together. Helping people deconstruct their faith without also helping put it back together again is lazy, irresponsible, dangerous, and isolating. He writes, for him, wokeness was the new morality. Therapy was the new path to happiness. And there was conveniently no personal God to place demands upon your life in any meaningful way. One of my friends put it this way. Nature hates a vacuum. If you remove something but don't have anything to replace it with, something will come in that maybe you don't want there. And it can cause you a lot of pain and a lot of destruction. Friends, I love you. I care about you. I care about your marriages. I care about your families. I care about your kids and I care about your grandkids. 
It's why we're doing this series. And so next week, we're gonna talk about this. What do progressive Christians believe? I can't go into all of their beliefs. In fact, they are different. There's not one set of beliefs, but I'm gonna talk about the most common that most progressive Christians share. And then we're gonna spend three weeks talking about this question. Why is the deconstruction process so appealing to some? And how can we better respond as Christians and as a church? Because I'll tell you one theme that's emerged. Why people have engaged in this. They had questions, they had doubts, and their church put them down for those. Rather than just let's talk, let's work this through in a compassionate and loving way. So we're gonna learn how to do that. And then we're gonna close out this series with a guest. And we've worked hard on getting her here. And thankfully, uh, by God's grace and God's timing, it worked out that while she travels all over the place, she just happens to be right here in Cincinnati on this weekend visiting a friend. And so she's coming to be with us as well. Her name is Elisa Childers. And you may not have heard of her, but you've heard her maybe in some ways. She's a very popular uh, you know, blogger out there. Uh, she's all over the internet in a good way. She has podcasts. She's an author. She's been a well-known musician. And she's somebody who deconstructed her faith and then found herself completely empty and rebuilt her faith again based on what the Bible says, and now she has committed her life to helping people like you, helping parents to understand how to approach their children, helping us as Christians to know how to better respond as a church so that others can love the Lord and not turn to the left and not turn to the right. She'll be here with us on the 12th, and then on the afternoon, and parents, I wanna encourage you to Mark your calendars now, the afternoon of September 12th. She'll be doing a workshop where you'll have the opportunity to ask her any question you want to equip you in terms of what it means to be a parent or a grandparent and how to step into this conversation. Now, you may not know her, so I wanted to introduce you to her in some way. So here's just the beginning portion of her story that she wants to share with you. I was born into a Christian home to parents who modeled for me a genuine Christianity, a genuine faith. It wasn't perfect, but it was real. And I've loved Jesus for as long as I can remember. As early as I began to read and write, I began to read and study the Bible. And I recognized something in it that was real and true. As a young girl, my mom would take us down to Skid Row in Los Angeles, and we would work the soup lines at the Fred Jordan Mission on weekends. And I got to see the power of God working in people's lives. I, I saw the lives of drug addicts and prostitutes become radically transformed by the gospel. And the Christians that I knew were people who sacrificed their own comfort to love and serve those whom society had abandoned. And I realize now that it was some of those experiences that helped to anchor my faith as a young girl. So my faith wasn't blind, I can't say that it was blind, but it was intellectually weak and untested. Music has always been in my blood. My dad was one of the founders of the contemporary Christian music genre, and when I was in my early 20s, I moved to Nashville, Tennessee and signed a record deal and helped form the group Zoe Girl. And for seven years, we wrote music and recorded albums and toured all around the country with great bands. I got to play venues like Madison Square Garden 
and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It was an amazing experience. And it was during that time that I married our drummer. And then shortly after the group disbanded, I found myself at home with a new baby, and I began to play and sing at different churches here and there. And I met a pastor who described himself as a hopeful agnostic. And he challenged my faith in a way that had never been challenged before. And the challenge was intellectual. And virtually everything that I had ever believed about God and Jesus, and especially the Bible, was picked apart and deconstructed with what at the time I thought were flawless intellectual arguments. And he did it better than any atheist I'd ever met. See, growing up, I met a lot of atheists. I expected atheists to not believe. But when it was a pastor that I respected and had come to trust that was making some of these same claims, it shook me to my core because I realized in those moments that I didn't know how to defend what I believed. And it threw me into what I can only describe as a storming ocean of doubt. I was dog paddling for dear life with no life jacket, with no hope of rescue, and the world got dark. She'll be with us on the 12th to finish the rest of that story and to help us all in this journey. Friends, many people doubt. We have doubts at one time or another, but we are not called to live in doubt. As Christians, we're called to be salt and light. We've talked about that. And as salt and light, that means we are called to help people move beyond doubt so they can truly live. So our call, should you choose to accept it, is to really understand what's going on in our culture. To listen to the doubts of others and then humbly, gracefully, and honestly, and truthfully respond to them in a way that helps them to love Jesus and helps them to truly live. Don't miss this series. Invite people to join you. Tell other parents about this. Do not miss this. But whatever you do, don't fall prey to it. Because doubt based on deception produces deconstruction. Not devotion. Not devotion. Friends, we want to be about following Jesus. So as we end this series, let me just ask you this question. Where are you with Jesus? Are you basking in the green, green grass of his salvation? Or are you trying to find your spiritual food elsewhere? God loves you. I believe he's called you. He's reached out to you, sent his son to die on the cross for you so that you could know life. And so let's be about following him, engaging with him, and representing him in our world because our world is divided, it's confused, it's combusting, and more now than ever. It needs Christians to be salt and light. It needs Christians to represent his love and his grace. That's what this series is about. Invite others to join you, and let's continue the journey beginning next weekend. Will you pray with me? Dear Father, we thank you that you know us and yet you love us. You saw us in our sin and you provided a solution, your own son, Jesus Christ, who came in obedience to the cross. And Jesus, we thank you for all that you've done on our behalf so that everyone here and those watching, wherever they are, can be sons and daughters of the most high God, that we could be family, that we could be one. Lord, we live in a culture right now that is so confusing. It seems that truth is hard to identify, and the word expert 
has kind of been thrown out. Nobody really knows who to trust or who to listen to anymore. And so there are many people who are lost and there's a lot of division, not a lot of love and not a lot of kindness. You've called us to represent you to this world. So Lord, use this series to prepare our hearts, to show us things we've never seen before and help us to respond to others in ways that is life-giving, that points to you, Jesus, for you are the way, the truth, and the life. So use this series, speak through us, and do your refining work in us that we could model you to others in more beautiful and profound ways, ways that glorify you, God. We pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can stay connected throughout the week by following Montgomery Community Church on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about MCC, visit our website at mcc.church.